Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 35. And uh, we have some ushers that have Bibles. If you need one, just raise your hand. And please uh, take this as a gift. If you need a Bible to take home with you, we'd encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you uh, while listening to the sermon and participating along with it. Isaiah 35. We're preaching from Acts chapter 3 today, but I'd like to begin today's sermon in Isaiah 35, and I think you'll see why in a moment. Let me read this great passage from the prophet Isaiah. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away." The prophet Isaiah envisions this time of restoration and hope for God's people, a time of abundance in the land, a time of holiness, a time of joy, and a time of healing and miracles, like the blind receiving sight, the lame leaping for joy. Does that sound like an exciting time to you? I hope so. Today in the book of Acts, we are going to see the early church and how it began to fulfill that passage in the book of Isaiah. So that's what we're going to see. There's the connection. We're going to come back to Isaiah in a little bit, but turn forward with me in your Bibles all the way to Acts chapter 3 at this time. Acts chapter 3. We've taken five weeks to work through Acts 1 and 2, but now we pick up the pace just a little bit, and we're going to cover all of Acts 3 this morning. I promise to get you out of here before kickoff. In the first two chapters of this book... We've seen the birth of the early church. Jesus ascends up to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit down to baptize and to fill the believers. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up and he preaches this epic sermon in chapter 2. And as a result of this sermon, 3,000 people get saved and baptized. And as we saw last week, the church devoted themselves to the word of God, to fellowship, to eating together, and to prayer. And the Lord continued to increase their number every single day as people were continuing to get saved and baptized among them. Now, several times in Acts chapter 2, we hear these pairs of words, signs and wonders. Signs and wonders that God is going to do and show through the other believers. Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Verse 43, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
Acts chapter 3 shows us an example of what those wonders and signs actually look like. Let's start reading at the top of the chapter, Acts 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And before we read any more, let me just set the scene here. God began something at the day of Pentecost. He started a movement in the early church. Uh, It's a new time of redemptive history. But even though something new began with the believers and John, Peter, the other apostles, there were still some lingering Jewish habits that they practiced. Their old religious way of life was, was not yet done away with. They still kind of practiced some of these things. Uh, they were ingrained in these daily routines. Jewish people prayed several times a day. And usually their prayer was linked with the times of sacrifices in the temple. They would have an early morning sacrifice, 9 a.m. They would have an evening sacrifice right before the sun went down. And they also had a 3 p.m. sacrifice, or as this text calls it, the ninth hour of the day. Remember, they started their hours at 6 a.m. Ninth hour of the day would be about 3 p.m. And this is the time that Peter and John are heading into the temple for that 3 p.m. sacrifice. Now, it doesn't say whether or not they participated in the sacrifice, but clearly they're still following the daily rhythms of Jewish life. And that's where we pick up in this text. God is going to use this as an opportunity for evangelism. Let's keep reading. Verse 2 and 3. It says, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. You ever been in a situation like this? It's a little bit awkward, you know, not quite knowing what to do. On on the one hand, we as believers and Christians, we want to have compassion for those who have need. You don't want to turn a blind eye towards someone with a legitimate need if you're able to help. On the other hand, the tension is we're always kind of worried about being scammed, aren't we? About giving money to someone who's just going to use it to, to buy something that perhaps they don't necessarily need. It's a challenge sometimes in today's day to balance compassion with the suspicion that we might have. Well, Peter and John come across this situation, except for them, they live in a time where there were no government handouts, there was no, no free medical help for any people in need, no welfare, no social security, no soup kitchens. I mean, they had very little to help them if you're in a situation where you have actual need. So a person like this one, lame from birth, unable to walk, if he did not have any family to help him, he had to rely on the compassion of strangers to do so. And what better place to sit and ask for help than right outside the temple. So each day, this guy's friends or his neighbors or companions, they they bring him in and they put him outside this gate that's called the beautiful gate. Now, it's a bit tricky to figure out which gate exactly we're talking about because there was no gate officially called the beautiful gate. But uh, way back when, a a Jewish historian named Josephus talked about these 10 gates at the temple, and he said one gate was far more beautiful than the rest. It was larger. It was more beautifully decorated. It was called the Nicanor Gate. And if you look at the uh, PowerPoint up here, I think we have a slide of that. Um, Right in the middle there of the temple, right as you're entering into that holy place, that's that big, giant, beautiful gate. It's highly visible, a high traffic area in the temple. So day after day, this lame man would get carried in, and he would sit there, and he would beg for help, beg for alms. He has no hope. 
He has no hope of getting better, no hope of a doctor performing surgery, no hope of, of anything like that, no wheelchair, I'm sure. His entire life and the entire outlook of his life depended on the generosity of other people around him. So this guy sees Peter and John walking in, and he begins to do what I'm sure he did every other day of his life. He begs for help. But this day is a day like no other for him. Let's read a little bit more this time, verses 4 all the way down to verse 10. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is radical life change, isn't it? Peter and John far exceed this man's expectations. The beggar was sitting there hoping to get some money. He fixes his attention on Peter and John. The text says that he was expecting to receive something from them. Maybe these two apostles have a few coins that they can spare. What's interesting to me is that he wasn't asking to be healed. He, he wasn't asking to be saved from his sins. What he wanted was only an avenue that the apostles would use to give him what he truly needed. Now, I, I wish I could respond to every beggar on the street corner just like Peter and John here. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It would be nice to go to the hospital and be able to use that line and, and see miracle after miracle happening. Right? It would be nice to have this power of healing. It would, it would save me from the normal dilemma of do I give them money or not? How in the world can I help? We might not be able to heal someone like this. In fact, I wish I, I could. My family's been sick all week long. Just last night, I had another kid throwing up. So if you'll, you'll forgive me if I don't stick around to shake hands and hug you after service here today. We don't have the power to heal by ourselves, neither did Peter and John, by the way. It was in the name of Jesus Christ that they were able to do this. We might not always have money to give, neither did Peter and John, by the way. But we will be able to say to someone, let me share with you something that is greater than silver or gold. Because what we have is the gospel to share with other people, and that is what they need more than anything else. Now, oftentimes, meeting that, that physical need, that immediate need, that is the avenue that you could use to start sharing the gospel. It's like that old saying, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. When you spend some time sharing and caring with somebody, they're more open to you preaching the gospel after that. That's part of what our strategy is on some of these short-term mission trips that you hear about that we take. Help meet a physical need and then pray that through that act of love, people's hearts would be more open to hear the gospel afterwards. But I don't, I don't want to miss the exciting way that Luke describes this healing miracle. Look at how he piles up all the different verbs of how this man reacts to what happens here. Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man does a whole lot more than rise up and walk, doesn't he? Verse 8, leaping up, he stood and he began to walk, walking and leaping and praising God. Verse 9, people saw him walking and praising God. Let me just focus in for a minute on that one verb that's used twice in verse 8, leaping up. 
he was leaping and praising God. That's a very rare word. It's not used often in Scripture, but where we do see it used is very significant. We see it used in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, when Isaiah the prophet says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Luke purposefully reuses this rare word to draw our attention back to that passage in Isaiah 35. Isaiah predicts there is going to be a time of restoration of God's people, a time of joy and of gladness, and yes, a time of healing. And Isaiah says, in that time, the lame man shall leap like a deer. And what do we see in Acts chapter 3? We see a lame man healed and leaping around the temple, praising God in the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus brings that restoration predicted in Isaiah 35. This is Luke's way of saying the Old Testament prophecies have begun to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is an incredible miracle, isn't it? One of the things that Luke continually stresses in this story is that this man was lame from birth. It's not like he, he broke his ankle in a basketball game this week and has to be in a cast for four weeks or something like that, right? for you. <laughs> Not even in the script here, right? <laughs> this guy was lame from birth. I, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody that could not walk from birth and how atrophied their legs are. Even if a person had suddenly the ability to walk and use those legs again, they would need weeks and probably months of physical therapy and strength training just to take a few steps. This guy skips the toddler stage of life, learning to walk. He's never taken a step before, and instantly, not only is he healed, but he is walking and leaping and praising God. That's the kind of restoration that God brings in. And people are filled with wonder and amazement that are seeing this. They, they can't even believe this is the same guy that used to sit at this gate day after day begging us for a couple of coins. Now, there's a lot more to come, but there's a lot that we can learn even just from what we've seen so far. If this guy is so excited about what God has done physically with his legs, how much more excited should we be with the spiritual restoration in our hearts today? God has given us all the more reason to leap for joy and to praise the Lord. We have been brought from death to life spiritually atrophied hearts have been restored. Withered spirits have been reinvigorated. Praise God. Don't be afraid to leap about, to forget a few words while you're singing on the stage here. I mean, it is okay to be so excited about God that you're leaping for joy. Praise God for what he's done. We can learn a lot about how Peter and John treat this guy. Their words to him are really the heartbeat of this passage. Jesus Christ is far better than silver and gold. It's kind of like that old hymn that we used to sing. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. Church, is that true of you? Maybe God doesn't heal you physically. You've been praying, you've been hoping, and you've been asking the Lord, and, and God decides not to heal. God decides not to make you rich. God decides not to make you famous. Will you still be satisfied in him. Well, all of this is great so far, but frankly, that's all just the introduction to this sermon. This is the setup 
for what Peter does next. Peter uses this miracle to introduce his sermon. And just like Acts chapter 2, where the believers were speaking in tongues, and that tongues was a sign uh, to authenticate and confirm the gospel that's shared next, that's exactly what Peter does here. This miracle is a sign that points to and confirms and authenticates the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's see how Peter uses this opportunity to spread the word of God. Look at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And, and I'm going to pause there just for a second. Again, not to belabor this point, but you can see how Peter uses this opportunity to share the gospel with the crowd. He has the attention of all the people. And just like Luke used a lot of words to describe how this guy reacted to this healing miracle, so Luke uses a lot of words to describe the crowd's reaction to what's gone on. They were filled with wonder. They were filled with amazement. They were utterly astounded. They are hooked. And Peter uses this for his advantage. Let's listen into the first part of his sermon. First major paragraph here, verses 12 down to 16. Peter says, men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now this is one of those things that I really love about Peter and listening to his sermons. Peter is blunt and he's straightforward, isn't he? And he gets right to the point he doesn't beat around the bush. He, he tells it how it is. Everyone's standing there marveling at this amazing thing that they have just seen. A beggar, a man lame from birth, is leaping around praising God in the temple. His feet are leaving the ground of his own will. And what does Peter do? He stands up and he says, what in the world are you looking at? He says, don't look at us. Don't look at me and John. We didn't do this. It's not like they had the, the magic words to make this happen. We didn't do this. We apostles have no special power. He puts all the attention on God. He gives the credit where credit is due right away. That's really significant. He does it again at the last verse of this uh, paragraph. He makes the same point. It is God who has done this. Put your faith in Jesus. Don't put your faith in us. And church, there's a lot we can learn from even that, isn't there? It's tempting to take credit for what the Lord is doing on our own. The Lord accomplishes something through us. Praise the Lord, but that's his work. That's not our work. If the apostles weren't willing to take credit for this, we ought not to be, or we shouldn't be taking credit for the good works that we do either. But then Peter really gets to it. He delivers that first real strong gut punch, as I call it. Don't look at us. Look at Jesus, he says. Jesus, you know Jesus, the guy that you delivered over and denied when Pilate was willing to release him. This miracle was done by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he says, you're amazed at what Jesus did, who, by the way, don't you remember? You killed. Now, this is not anti-Semitism here. This is historical fact. The Romans 
were not the ones shouting, crucify him. Pilate didn't get up and ask the Gentiles, who should I release, either Jesus or Barabbas? That's what he's alluding to here. You might remember that story. Instead of releasing Jesus, the Jews begged uh, Pilate to release a murderer. Pilate, the Roman governor, he was willing to release Jesus, and, and he couldn't do anything, he couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus. So instead of doing what he should have done, I mean, he was a, kind of a spineless politician is what he was. He's facing the pressure of the people, and instead of doing the right thing, he gives the people a choice. Do you want this innocent man to go free, or do you want this murderer called Barabbas to go free? I bet Pilate thought that would be an easy choice. And the people begged for the murderer. A guilty man will be murdered, and instead a murderer will be free. Peter doesn't cut any corners in this sermon, does he? He's not placating anyone. He's not sugarcoating this. We need to remember the gospel begins with sin. It doesn't do anyone any favors to be Joel Osteen up from the pulpit, to never talk about sin, Sin's too unpleasant. Let's just smile our way to hell. That is not the gospel. That is not the word of God. Sinners must be confronted with sin. And they need to know that their sin put Jesus Christ on the cross. They need to know that without Jesus Christ, their sin will lead to the eternal condemnation of death in hell. And if, and if that's offensive, that's too bad. Because that's the reality of our situations as human beings. We are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. You think it's offensive telling people that homosexuality is a sin? You think it's offensive telling people that abortion is murder? Or that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil? Try telling people that they murdered Jesus. That's offensive. And that's where Peter begins. He says, you killed the author of of life. How about that for an ironic statement? How do you kill the author of life? He says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And Peter's very clear. We're all witnesses to this event. It's an undeniable fact. Go check out the grave for yourself. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Now we start to see some hope. And Peter gives them the secret ingredient here. He says, what gave this guy perfect health? What, what made this man restored? Again, it's not the power of the apostles. It's not the power of humans. It's not some magical incantation that they did. It was faith in Jesus Christ that made the difference. The text doesn't come right out and say the man had faith in the name of Jesus, but that's what's implied when Peter says it was by faith that this man was restored. Now, we're going to come back to that faith at the end of the sermon. But for now, I want us to understand Peter has put his audience in a very strange position. He has accused them of murdering the author of life. He accused them of being guilty of the most heinous crime in human history. You killed the Messiah. So what's next? Where do you go from there after that kind of an introduction? Well, this last paragraph of his sermon is especially dense. It's theologically rich. We're going to take this a few verses at a time to make sure we grasp all that's there. Verse 17. Peter says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So even though Peter started off with a strong punch, he does soften the next blow a little bit, doesn't he? He notices that the Jewish people acted in ignorance. This isn't exactly, I mean, this is really, 
I guess this is exactly what Jesus said on the cross, isn't it? He says, Lord, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. But I want you to understand that ignorance of sin is still sin. Ignorance of sin is still sin. Ignorance of sin does not eliminate the need for forgiveness or repentance. Um, it's the same thing with the law, isn't it? First year that Janice and I were married, it was the first year that I did my own taxes. And by that, I mean I had to go and get someone from the church to help me do my taxes. And uh, after, you know, we did all these things with the numbers and the receipts and, you know, figured out what we had to do. He gave us a couple of dates. You've got to get this in by that day and this in by that day. And we got some things confused. And we missed the deadline for giving in our taxes. Now, what was interesting about that was that was a crime, I think, that was committed in ignorance. We didn't do it on purpose. We didn't purposely say, I'm not paying my taxes this year. But guess what? It was still a crime. (laughs) Right? It was still wrong of us to do it. And guess what else? We still had to repent of that by paying our taxes and then paying the fee on top of it for late sending. Ignorance of the law does not excuse the crime, and ignorance of the law does not eliminate the penalty for the crime. Same thing with sin. Ignorance of sin does not eliminate the sin, and ignorance of sin does not eliminate the need to repent of that sin. It it's might, might be less bad than sinning with full knowledge, and yet it's still sin. Maybe you didn't realize how you were spending your money inappropriately before you were saved. You had no concept of tithing. You had no problem with a hedonistic lifestyle. But now that you know, what do you do about it? Maybe you never considered the impact of porn on your life until you came to know Christ. I once heard a non-Christian father say to his son, I'd rather you look at porn than get some girl pregnant and then handed him a magazine. Now, the unbelieving world has a very different view of sin. That's, that young man was raised up in a world where he did not recognize the wrong in that. But now that he knows, what do you do? Now that you know the standard of right and wrong, what will you do about it? Sins committed in ignorance are still sin. And they require forgiveness, and they require repentance. But before Peter gets to the repent part of this message, notice what he says in verse 18. Another theologically rich verse. He says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. A couple of weeks ago, I pointed out that the theological tension in verse two or chapter 2 of this text. It was God's definite plan for Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Yet it was the fault of the people who killed him that he died. I talked about that tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God's sovereign plan does not erase human accountability or human choice. It's, it's both of those working together at the same th- time. And, and we see the same thing here. Peter says, you killed Jesus. Yet in the same breath, he says, God foretold the suffering of Christ through the mouth of his prophets. It was God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross through the hands of sinners. And yet Jesus' death did not take God by surprise. It's not like Jesus came to earth and then, oh my goodness, no one saw this coming. They're getting ready to kill him. No, Ephesians 1 tells us that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, which means it was always God's plan for salvation to come to us in this way. 
And yet that does not erase the human responsibility element of all that. We might not have put Jesus there literally, physically ourselves, but our sin did. We are guilty of his death. And yet it's all part of God's plan to bring us to him. It's rich theology. We're going to see more of that next week. But Peter uses this theology to help them understand their need. Look at verses 19 to 21. Here's where he gets to the application. He says in verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that you may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. If you're one of those people who think, how could God ever forgive me for what I've done? I want you to take a look at verse 19 again. God offers forgiveness of sins for the murder of Jesus Christ. If these Jews could be forgiven for that sin, can you be forgiven for whatever sin is causing you guilt this morning? Absolutely. That's the beauty of the gospel. We did not earn this. We don't deserve this. But God loved us so much that he freely offered it to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever your sin is, if you are willing to put your faith in Christ and demonstrate that faith through repentance, your sins will be, it says, blotted out. And that word blotted out, it's a really cool one. It means to be erased, to be obliterated, to be wiped from the record of existence. That's what happens when you put your faith in Christ. We don't know that kind of forgiveness on this earth, do we? Even within our own marriages, I mean, you mess up and, and your spouse says he forgives you for it. What happens, though, a few months later when the time is right, he pulls that sin back out of his pocket and dangles it in front of you. Remember when, though? Remember when you did this? That's not forgiveness, right? That's not blotting out of sin. Acts chapter 2 used the word forgive to talk about what God does with our sin. This chapter uses blotted out. Remember the word forgiveness was a legal term? It means your debt is erased. Think about just those two terms, forgiveness and blotted out. Forgiveness, your debt is erased. Blotted out, your sin is obliterated. That's what the forgiveness of the Lord looks like. How awesome is that? Just, just a couple words here, lifting us up out of the guilt that we have in our sin. But that's not the only benefit Jesus is offering here, is it? Peter says that if the Jews repent and return from their sins, he says times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So the immediate effect of turning to the Lord in faith is forgiveness, blotting out of sins. The far effect, the more remote purpose of this, is that we have a wonderful time of blessing to look forward to. We have times of refreshing to come. And I think there's a lot of end times theology and significance with that statement here. Peter is speaking to the Jewish people, and he says, you need to repent. He says, you need to repent that. And that word that is a word that usually indicates purpose, so that. Why should they repent? So that, and he says two reasons here, so that, number one, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and so that, number two, Christ might be sent to you again. Jesus had to go to heaven for a short time. 
and he went until a time of restoration will come. Remember the question that the disciples asked Jesus in the first chapter of this book? First sermon on Acts. Acts 1.6. Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? This relates to that. When will that restoration come? Well, apparently not until the Jewish people repent. So my understanding of this passage, and I understand this is not everyone's understanding of this passage, but my read of this passage is right in line with what I also read in books like Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Before the return of Christ, there will be a great revival and repentance of the Jewish people. Their eyes will be open to who their true Messiah is. I don't read that these times of refreshing are right now. In fact, I, I, if you look at verse 21, I think verse 21 is most naturally taken to mean that this time of refreshing has not yet happened yet. Jesus has to remain in heaven until that time, and then when he comes, he will bring that time of refreshing. And one of the things that we are praying for and that we are waiting for is the repentance of the nation of Israel. Romans 11, the Apostle Paul says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the time of the Gentiles has come in, and in that way, all Israel will be saved. So personally, the way I read this, I think based on Peter's words in Acts 3, based on Paul's words in Romans 11, we are anticipating a time when the Jewish nation will one day repent and accept Jesus Christ as her Messiah. That will usher in a great time of restoration and refreshing from God or for God's people when the Messiah returns. But until then, Christ stays in heaven. Now to back this up, what Peter does is he begins to quote the Old Testament. In fact, Peter quotes another sermon. Look at verse 12, or excuse me, verse 22. He says, this is Peter speaking. Peter says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now what Peter's doing is he's quoting a well-known prophecy about the Messiah. He quotes from Deuteronomy 18 with a little dash of Leviticus 23 sprinkled in. Deuteronomy 18 comes from a sermon of Moses. Moses is preaching one of his final sermons to the people of Israel, and he's talking about the law that God has given them and reminding them of that law before they enter into that promised land. So in a way, this is kind of like, remember that movie Inception with a dream within a dream within a dream? This is like the inception of sermons here. I'm preaching a sermon on Peter preaching a sermon about Moses preaching a sermon. It's a sermon within a sermon within a sermon. But Moses' sermon, Deuteronomy 18, he predicts that this prophet will, will, will be like him and come one day. A prophet like Moses will one day arise, and later scripture develops that and helps us to understand that is the Messiah. Jesus is the prophet like Moses predicted in scripture. Now, I, I once had a student quite offended with me that I called Jesus a prophet. And I had to explain a little bit, which I'll do here to, with you today as well. This doesn't mean that Jesus was just a prophet. It doesn't mean that he was only a prophet. But he was a prophet in the sense that he is preaching the words of God to the people of God in a prophetic sense. He's authoritatively commanding the people of God with the words of God. But he was certainly more than a prophet. Jesus was, he is, he always will be God but he's also called the prophet like Moses. And the Israelites are commanded to follow him, to obey his words, or get cut off from the Lord. 
And Peter is giving his audience a choice. He's saying, you can repent, you can enjoy times of refreshing, you can see that Messiah come again, or you can ignore him, and you can face destruction. That sounds like a pretty easy decision to me, doesn't it? Peter has laid out a clear path in this sermon. He has pointed out their sin. He's let them know, here's what you've got to do about it. He's warned them, here's what happens if you don't repent. And then he closes. How does Peter close his sermon? All sermons have some kind of a conclusion, a grand finale, something that hits home and sticks. Some sermons end with a joke. Some sermons end with a nice story and makes you go, "Mm, amen. Some sermons conclude with an altar call, some emotional music. Well, what Peter does is he concludes his sermon in a way that many preachers since then have also done. He repeats himself. Look at verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, now those two verses are much the same of what we've already heard. The prophets predicted these days. The entire Old Testament anticipated the coming of the Messiah. And he reminds them, you are ancestors of those prophets. You are the children of the original covenant. You are the recipients of Abraham's blessings. In other words, if anyone should have seen the Messiah coming, it should have been you. And yet you killed him. You should have known is what Peter's getting at here. In fact, the Jews got first priority. They had the first opportunity to either accept or reject their Messiah. That's what he says in the final verse of this sermon, verse 26. Peter says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. To the Jews first. Jesus was sent to his own people first. They had the opportunity to accept him as their Messiah, to repent of his murder, and to do so would have brought in the kingdom and a time of healing and restoration. Now, next week, we're going to deal with how do the Jews react to this. Did they accept this Messiah? Did they reject him? Did they listen to the words of Peter? Did they follow the gospel or not? What did Peter's sermon do with the Jewish people? That's what we're going to deal with next week. We're going to save that reaction till then. But here's what I want to ask you. What is your reaction to this sermon? What is your reaction to Acts chapter 3? We've seen Peter make several really significant points for us to consider. Number one, we are sinners. We have not maybe literally driven the nails through Jesus' hands on the cross, but our sin put him there. The starting point of the gospel is a confrontation of our sin. Have you accepted that fact? Maybe you've been sinning out of ignorance. Maybe you haven't been brought up in the church, in Christianity. This is your first real exposure to the Lord. Sins and ignorance are still sin, and they still need to be dealt with. Have you confessed your sin to the Lord? Have you recognized your need for a Savior? So number one, we are sinners. Number two, Peter stresses the urgent need for faith and repentance. The lame beggar had faith, and Peter urges the crowd to also have faith and repent of their sin. How have you reacted to your sin? This goes for those who know the Lord as well. I know the main focus of this passage is is confronting our sin and turning to Christ in repentance for the first time. But, but all of us, whether we know the Lord or not, need to daily crucify 
the flesh. Daily crucify those things that are anti-God. Don't just say sorry. Do something about it. Crucify the deeds of your flesh. Make radical choices to turn from your sin and go the other way. We are sinners. We need faith and repentance. Number three, Peter talks about the need to be forgiven and the looking forward to that day of restoration that is to come. Some of us have a hard time accepting the forgiveness that God has given us. We feel like we've done too many wrongs. We are too unclean. Our sin is too dirty. I think this point bears repeating. If the Jews could be forgiven for killing the Messiah, you can be forgiven for whatever it is that you brought in with you today. All you need is faith in Christ because he's done the work on your behalf. We are sinners. We need faith and repentance. With that faith and repentance comes forgiveness and restoration. And finally, last thing, what is your reaction to that salvation? What is your reaction? Something even greater has happened within your heart than a lame man getting his legs back. Jesus Christ has saved you. His legs were healed. Our hearts were raised to life. He was given the ability to walk and to leap and to run with joy. We were spiritually raised from the dead. Do we leap and praise God for our salvation? Or do we too often forget what it is that God has done within us? As we keep thinking on these things, I want to close with another reading from that passage in Isaiah. Keep in mind, Jesus began to fulfill these things. And we get to look forward to the fullness of the time of restoration that is to come. So let me close with just a brief reading with a few of those verses from Isaiah 35, hopefully now heard through a different context. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for that time of restoration to come. We pray for the return of our Messiah. We pray for the repentance and the eye-opening of the Jewish people. We pray for forgiveness. I pray, Lord, for our repentance. I pray, God, that you would help us to have faith like the lame man. And I pray that you would help us to worship you like we saw in this passage, that we might be walking out of here leaping and praising you with joy and with gladness forevermore. What a work you've done in our hearts, Lord. Continue to help us to think about that, to praise you for it day after day, and to share that gospel with the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless.